For our scripture reading this morning, we turn to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, we begin reading at verse 31. In the preceding context, Matthew tells about the last Passover feast that Jesus celebrated with his disciples, as well as his institution of the Lord's Supper and his dismissal of Judas Iscariot. Now we begin reading at verse 31. Then saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this night, before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise also said all the disciples, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep. And saith unto Peter, What, could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation, The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words, Then cometh he to his disciples, and saith unto them, Sleep on now, and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves, from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And behold, 
One of them, which were with Jesus, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priests and smote off his ear. Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword into his place. For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled, that thus it must be? In that same hour said Jesus to the multitudes, Are ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and ye laid no hold on me. But all this was done, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. We read the scriptures that far this morning. We consider together the teaching of the Catechism in Lord's Day 15, which you can find in the back of your Psalter on page 9. Lord's Day 15 asks us, What dost thou understand by the words, He suffered? That he, all the time that he lived on earth, but especially at the end of his life, sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sins of all mankind. That so by his passion, as the only propitiatory sacrifice, he might redeem our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtain for us the favor of God, righteousness, and eternal life. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? That he, being innocent and yet condemned by a temporal judge, might thereby free us from the severe judgment of God to which we were exposed. Is there anything more in his being crucified than if he had died some other death? Yes, there is. For thereby I am assured that he took on him the curse which lay upon me. For the death of the cross was accursed of God. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the next significant fact about the life of Jesus Christ that we consider together this morning is what we confess in the fourth article of the Apostles' Creed, that God's own Son, who is himself the eternal God, who came into human nature and partook of the flesh and blood of man in the womb of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, and was crucified. God's Son, who is true and eternal God himself, not only condescended from his heavenly throne and came down to earth and took upon himself our human nature, and in that sense he who is great became small, but he also humbled himself and took on the form of a servant, and entered into the path of extreme suffering. 
even unto death. The Son of God entered into what we call in theology the state of humiliation, which would lead him down unto death by way of an ever-intensifying suffering and agony. As we sang earlier in Psalter 47, Down unto death thou leadest me, consumed by thirst and agony, with cruel hate and anger fierce, my helpless hands and feet they pierce. The Apostles' Creed lists for us the steps of his humiliation, his suffering under Pontius Pilate first, his crucifixion second, his death third, his burial fourth, and finally his descent into hell. This morning we consider the first of those two steps, the first two steps of his humiliation, his suffering, and crucifixion. And this morning, as we consider dark and horrible things, the sufferings of Christ, we're going to rejoice with great hope and celebration as we see that through his sufferings, our souls and bodies have been redeemed and we have been set free from the severe judgment of God. We consider together understanding the sufferings of Christ. That's our theme. Notice, first of all, that Christ is holding the cup of wrath in Gethsemane. And then secondly, that Christ is taking the cup willingly under Pilate. And thirdly, he is draining the cup fully on the cross. A study of the last chapters of the four Gospels in the New Testament paints a picture of Jesus suffering a tremendous amount of pain and grief. Suffering that pain and grief from the mouths of the Jews who did not believe in him and at the hands of the merciless Romans who tortured him in a manner That was exceedingly cruel. And we who live rather comfortable lives here in our country today, relatively free from physical persecution and torture, cannot hardly imagine the suffering and the pain of Jesus Christ that is depicted for us in these last chapters of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We cannot hardly fathom the depths of his suffering and pain. However, if we only focus, as we read these last chapters of the Gospels, on the sufferings that he endured from the mouths of the unbelieving Jews and at the hands of the merciless Romans, then what we are seeing is only the tip of the iceberg, as it were of the complete picture of the sufferings that he endured. We have to turn our attention to the experience of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We have to focus on what he says there, what he does there, what he prays. And then we start to see that there was a mysterious divine dimension to the sufferings of Jesus Christ 
We have to go with him and his disciples outside of the eastern gate of Jerusalem. We have to go with him in the night into the Mount of Olives. We have to go with him there on that night in which he was betrayed. We have to observe him there and listen to him there. And then we catch a glimpse of the true nature of what Christ suffered. As we follow Jesus and his disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane, we notice in the first place that Jesus tells the majority of the disciples to stay in one place as he continues deeper into the garden with his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. And we read there that Jesus began to be exceedingly sorrowful and very heavy of heart. In fact, he was so sorrowful and heavy-hearted that he expressed to his disciples, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. Jesus is expressing by those words that he's not just in a melancholy mood. He's not just experiencing bad feelings that we all experience from time to time. He's not just experiencing the kinds of sadness that we all experience from time to time. But he was feeling the tremendous burden and weight of the sufferings that awaited him that night and into the next day. He was experiencing the heavy burden of the most intense sorrow that any man would ever experience in all the history of the world that he was walking into that night. That was the burden of sorrow that he is expressing to his disciples. And in the second place, we notice that Jesus left those three disciples in one place, and he continued alone deeper into the garden. He fell down upon his knees, down onto his hands and his face on the ground in the garden. And he cried out to God from the depths of his soul, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And by that prayer, Jesus Christ reveals to us and to all who will read this story, that there is a mysterious, divine dimension to his sufferings. The sufferings that he was about to experience and that he had experienced throughout his life was not merely of a human and earthly nature that we all experience. But there was a divine element. He was holding in his hands a cup that God had given to him. Now the question that we face is, what was that cup? Or what was in that cup that Jesus speaks of in this prayer? My Father, if it be possible, please, please, please take away this cup, this horrible cup. What was that cup? In order to understand what Jesus meant by that cup, we have to go back to the Old Testament scriptures. And as we scan the Old Testament, we find that on more than one occasion, God inspired the psalmists 
and the prophets to speak of a cup. A cup that is filled with bitter dregs. The bitter sediment uh, that is left over after someone drinks the wine in that cup. The leftovers that nobody wants to drink, that are bitter to drink. And that is given as a figure for the bitter agony and anguish that comes to those who suffer the wrath of Jehovah God. The cup that Jesus speaks of here is a cup that is filled with the bitter sufferings of the wrath and fury of God against sin. You can find that in Psalm 11, in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. One example is in Psalm 75, which we sing in Psalter number 206 in these words, Jehovah holds a cup of wrath and holds it not in vain. For all the wicked of the earth its bitter dregs shall drain. The cup that Jesus speaks of here, this horrible cup that he asks the Father to remove from him, if at all possible, is a cup that is filled not merely with human wrath and human hatred, such as what the Jews and the Romans were about to unleash upon him. The human wrath and hatred that would come in the form of abuse and spitting and buffeting and crucifixion that would come in the form of a crown of thorns, of scourging of his blessed back, of mockery and reviling. Not only that wrath, but this cup that he was holding there in the garden was filled with the divine wrath, the wrath of God Almighty against sin and the sinner. It was filled with an eternal wrath. It was filled with eternal sufferings. You see, the wrath of man that Jesus was about to experience was only going to last for a brief moment. Only one night and one day would he have to suffer the indignation of the leaders of the Jews, the shouts of the people to crucify him, the condemnation of Pilate, the nails pounded by the Roman soldiers, only for one night and one day. But what he held in that cup was the wrath of God that leads to an everlasting suffering of body and soul. You see, the wrath of God banishes the sinner from his presence. The wrath of God casts the sinner into the outer darkness where he is forsaken for all eternity from his gracious and loving presence. The wrath of God is his holy and righteous displeasure with sin. His holy displeasure with the sinner who dares to rebel against him, to disobey his commandments and transgress his laws. His displeasure with the sinner who casts in the face of God his disobedience, his rebellion, the God who created him, the God who is the highest good, the God who is worthy of absolute love and devotion and loyalty and faithfulness and obedience. God is filled with wrath against that sin and that sinner. And the Bible describes the wrath of God as a fire that burns 
against that sin and that sinner. A fire that breaks forth and consumes that sinner in a place which Jesus himself called a furnace of fire where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth for all eternity. That cup filled with the eternal divine wrath against the sins of the sinner was in the hands of Jesus. Jesus was holding that cup there in the Garden of Gethsemane. That cup of wrath came into existence at the dawn of history in a much different garden, the Garden of Eden, when mankind, in the persons of our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God when they ate the fruit of the forbidden tree, it was in that moment that this cup of the wrath of God came into existence. It was in that moment of the fall of mankind when the wrath of God came forth against mankind for our sins. But whereas God from before the foundation of the world ordained that a portion of mankind, fallen, wicked mankind, a portion of sinners would have to drink that cup of wrath themselves, would have to suffer for their own sins themselves. God also ordained in his mercy and grace that the other portion of fallen, wicked mankind, he would have mercy upon them. And he would take the cups of the wrath that they deserve just as much as everyone else. And he would take that cup. He would take all of those cups of the wrath that they deserve and pour each one into one great cup and give that cup to Jesus. Jesus was holding in his trembling hands in the Garden of Gethsemane the cup that was filled with the wrath of God against the sins of all mankind. That's what the Catechism says. Jesus was not holding a cup of wrath against his own sins because he didn't have any sins, he wasn't a sinner. He was holy and righteous and good and pure in all of his words and actions throughout his life. But what was in that cup was the eternal wrath of God against your sins and my sins. The eternal wrath of God against the sins of all mankind, the Catechism says. The Catechism does not mean by that that Christ held in his hands the cup of the wrath of God against the sins of every single man, of every single human being. Because as we have just pointed out, God has ordained from eternity that a portion of wicked mankind will drink their own cups, but he will be merciful upon the other portion of mankind. 
If what the catechism means is that Jesus held in his hands the cup of wrath against every single human being head for head, then we run into the heresy called universalism. The heresy that teaches that there is no wrath of God against anybody. There is no judgment for anybody. Nobody will go to hell. Nobody will suffer damnation. Everybody has been covered from the wrath of God by Christ. And we know that's not true. Therefore, we understand what the Catechism means when it says that he holds the cup of wrath against the sins of all mankind, that he means all of those whom God has ordained to have mercy upon them throughout the whole width and the whole breadth and the whole length of mankind, because the elect are found in every nation and every tribe and every tongue and every class of society. They are found among the rich, they are found among the poor. They are found among men and women and adults and children. They are found among every race and every color of skin. And they are found in every age of the history of the world. That's a lot of wrath against a lot of sin that was in that cup. And so he held it with trembling, trembling hands. So you see that when we follow Jesus into Gethsemane, when we watch, when we listen, when we observe, we see the true nature of his sufferings. The human dimension was just the tip of the iceberg that is meant to direct our attention into the divine dimension, the cup of the wrath of God. And when we understand that, we understand what he suffered. We don't fully understand it. Who can fully comprehend the mystery of the sufferings of Christ in all of its depths? And yet when we see the Son of God in human flesh falling on his knees and face and crying out to God to take away that cup, we understand something of the nature of what he suffered. And as we look into the face of such horrible suffering, we cannot help but ask the question, why? Why must he suffer so much, such great and terrible sufferings, What is the meaning of this suffering? What is the purpose of this suffering? The Catechism gives us this sweet answer. He suffered so that, as the only propitiatory sacrifice, he might redeem our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtain for us the favor of God righteousness, and eternal life. That's the meaning, and that's the purpose of this suffering. He did it for you and for me 
for our salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ, holding that cup in the Garden of Gethsemane, demonstrated by the subsequent events that night and the next day, that he willingly took hold of that cup. He took it. And he didn't let go of it. When Jesus prayed three times there in the Garden of Gethsemane, that the Father, if it was possible, would take this cup away from him, we have to understand that he was not demonstrating a lack of willingness to drink that cup. Not a lack of willingness. For on the one hand, Jesus was not making that prayer as a sinner. For a sinner to make that prayer, for you or for me as a sinful person to pray, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Don't make me suffer your wrath. Don't cast me into hell. Have mercy upon me without punishment. God will never answer that prayer. Because he is a just and a righteous God. And every sin must be punished. For a sinner to pray that God would take away the punishment that he deserves. For a guilty criminal, a guilty murderer to stand before the judge and to say, please have mercy upon me. Please just let me go. Just let me go. I want to live my life. I don't want to go to the electric chair. I don't want to go to prison for life. I want to live. I want to live. Please have mercy upon me. The judge must not have mercy upon him, but give him the just punishment that he deserves. But Jesus was not a sinner. And Jesus was not making this prayer as a sinner. He was righteous and holy and good and pure, a lamb without spot or blemish. And on the other hand, even when Jesus made this prayer, he never once expressed even a hint of unwillingness to drink the cup. Not even a hint. That's not how we are to explain the text. When Jesus says, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt, Jesus expresses an absolute submission to the will of God. Absolute. And he sets an example for us as well. When we suffer, when we pray that God will take away our sufferings, the thorns in our flesh, like the Apostle Paul who prayed three times, Lord, if it be possible, take away this thorn out of my flesh. Then we must also pray, nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And as God said to Paul, I will not take it away. My grace is sufficient for thee. 
Jesus was completely willing to drink that cup of suffering. In his divine nature, of course, Jesus knew that the will of God was that he drink that cup. He knew that. He knew that the will of God must be fulfilled and he would drink that cup. He knew that in his divine nature. And he also knew that in his human nature, because the divine nature passes that knowledge to his human nature, so that also in his human nature he knew that the will of God was that he drank that cup. But in his human nature he did not know whether in the, among the infinite possibilities of the divine mind and counsel, in those infinite possibilities, whether there might be somewhere within the mind of God some other way, some other way, which could still be in harmony with his justice and mercy, with his righteousness and love. He didn't know that. Not in his human nature. And so in his human nature, trembling, holding that cup, he prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, I will drink it, if that is thy will. Jesus demonstrates willingness to drink the cup in the subsequent events that followed after the Garden of Gethsemane. And really, if you think about it, Jesus made that prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane also for this purpose, to make known to us two things. One, the magnitude of his suffering that he was about to experience for us the magnitude of it. There is the Son of God trembling, holding that cup in his hands. And in the second place, his willingness to do it for you. His willingness. He made that prayer to show us that he's willing and that he was willful and that he was conscious and active. He was going the way of the cross, he was not passive. He was not being tugged along unwillingly. He was actively, willingly walking the path for us. So, when that traitor Judas Iscariot came into the Garden of Gethsemane, surrounded by that band of soldiers and servants with their blazing torches and their staves and their swords, And Judas walks up to Jesus and gives him a kiss on the cheek to reveal, this is Jesus. This is the one whom you must take. And when Peter pulls out his little sword and swings it at Malchus, one of the servants of the high priest, and trying to slice his head, he misses and slices off his ear. Jesus reaches down and picks up the ear of Malchus and miraculously heals him and puts it back onto his head and says to Peter, don't you realize 
that those who live by the sword will die by the sword? And don't you realize that right at this moment I could pray to my Father in heaven and he could send down to earth 12 legions of angels to liberate me and us right here, right now. 12 legions, thousands upon thousands, millions of angels could come to my rescue. All I have to do is pray. But Jesus did not make that prayer. Jesus did not pray for those legions of angels. Why not? Because he had already received the answer to his previous prayers. The answer of the Father to him was, there is no other way. No other way. You must drink the cup. And that's why Jesus said to Peter, according to John 18, verse 11, the cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Shall I not drink it? I shall. He had taken hold of that cup. And now he had the absolute determination to drink it. Nothing could stop him now from drinking it. Not Judas, not Peter, not the other disciples, not twelve legions of angels. He himself would not will anything different than the will of the Father. And so they led him off from the garden back into Jerusalem, to the palace of Caiaphas, the high priest, in the middle of the night, into an illegal trial of the Jewish leaders. And as he stood before Caiaphas and the other rulers of the Jews, as he was accused falsely by one man after another, he held his peace. He didn't argue. He didn't refute their arguments. He was quiet. He didn't say a word until Caiaphas asked him, Tell us, are you or are you not the Christ? Then he spoke, Yes. Thou sayest, and you are right, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. And that's when they said, Blasphemy. And that's when they spit in his face. And that's when they punched him in the face. And that's when they said, he's worthy of death. But he said not a word. As they led him off to the judgment hall of Pontius Pilate. And as the Pharisees stirred up the people to chant, don't release Barabbas, but release, uh, release Barabbas and crucify Jesus. Crucify him, crucify him. He didn't say a word. And as Pilate brought him into his judgment hall and questioned him and asked him all these things, for the most part, he was silent. They scourged him with the cruel whip. They pressed the crown of thorns into his head. But Jesus went as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth, just as Isaiah prophesied. He had taken hold of the cup, you see. He was gripping it and determined to drink it. 
The Catechism asks why he suffered under Pontius Pilate as a judge. Why would he put himself through that? Why would he put himself through the agonizing experience? And it's an agonizing experience, which I hope none of us have had to experience, but maybe some of us have, of knowing that you are innocent, but then being condemned. It's an agonizing experience of knowing that you are innocent, but then having to submit to the sentence of condemnation. Jesus put himself through that agonizing experience. Why? Because he wanted to show us that even as he was willing to experience that lesser experience, of being innocent and yet condemned by a man. He was also willing to put himself through the much worse experience of knowing himself to be innocent and yet accepting the sentence of condemnation from God. That's what he wants us to know. That's why he put himself through it. Catechism tells us that being innocent and yet condemned, he might free us from the severe judgment of God to which we were exposed. That's the blessed purpose that drove him forward in his sufferings to free us from the severe judgment of God that we deserve. To liberate us so that we would never have to hear, though we may hear men condemn us, we would never have to hear God condemn us. So that there will be now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. In other words, he did it because he loves us. All of these sufferings were driven by love. The love of God and the love of his Son for us is what led him down unto death. The greatest sufferings of all. So that we would be able to live and die happily. So that we would be able to live and die with the comfort that we belong to this suffering servant of Jehovah body and soul, and life and death, and we don't have to be afraid when we come to the end of our life. That when we breathe our last and we awake in the presence of the judge of all men, that he's going to condemn us. But as those who trust in Jesus Christ, we can have the comfort that he will acquit us because of the sufferings of his son. He's holding the cup And then, at last, he lifted it to his lips and he drank it to the last drop. And he did that on the cross. 
After Jesus was sentenced to death by Pontius Pilate, the Roman soldiers laid upon his back that long wooden cross, that piece of wood, and they led him through the streets of Jerusalem to the gates of the city until he could carry it no longer. And from there, Simon the Cyrenian carried it the rest of the way to Golgotha, the place of a skull, the place of death, the place of execution. And there the Roman soldiers nailed the crossbeam and laid Jesus on the cross. And with their long, cruel steel nails, pounded them through his wrists and through his feet, affixing him to the cross, and lifted him up between two malefactors who deserved that death. And Jesus suffered the skin-piercing agony of the nails. And Jesus experienced the soul-piercing agony of the mockery and the railings and revilings of the passers-by who said, if you are the Son of God, come down. But he didn't come down because he had determined to drink the cup and now he was drinking it for us. And the catechism says, is there anything significant about the fact that he died on a cross as opposed to some other kind of death? And the answer is, yes, there is. Because God revealed already in the Old Testament that anybody who hangs upon a tree is cursed. And that cross was a tree. A tree with a crossbeam. That's what it was. He was hanging on it, hanging on a tree. And therefore the death of the cross was a sign that the curse of God was upon him. Galatians 3, the Apostle Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. As it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth upon a tree. He had to die on the cross because that cross is the message of the gospel to us. That he died for our sins. That he suffered for us the curse that we deserve. The curse that lay upon us. He took it and laid it upon himself. The cup full of wrath against us. He drank it to the last drop. You see, beloved, if we only focus on the pain of the nails and the shame of the passers-by and the shame of dying on a cross almost or completely naked, we only see the tip. But when we understand that the cross means the curse, Then we learn the mystery of the cross. That he was suffering nothing less than the wrath, judgment, and curse of God against us. And he finished it. 
every last drop. Catechism says he sustained the wrath of God. That's a significant word. He didn't just suffer it. He sustained it, meaning he bore it up. It wasn't too much for him. It wasn't too heavy. He bore it up and he bore it away. And it's gone. His death is a propitiatory sacrifice. That word propitiatory means that it appeased the wrath of God. It satisfied his wrath. So that his wrath, if it is a burning hot fire, has been quenched. Entirely quenched. And there's no wrath against us. So is there any practical significance to the fact that he died on the cross? Yes, there is. Catechism says, because thereby I personally am assured, as a believer, I personally am assured, the curse that lay upon me, he has taken upon himself. See what a blessing that is? Beloved child of God, don't ever say that God is cursing you. He doesn't curse you. He will never curse you. He will only bless you. No matter what you experience, no matter what you suffer, it's all for your benefit. It's all for your good. There is no curse for the children of God. Only blessing. That's the practical significance and comfort. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Amen. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, what a Savior indeed. Hallelujah, praise unto thee. We give thanks that thou hast sent thy Son to endure such agony for us. Grant, Father, that we might have a deeper understanding and appreciation for the sufferings of our Savior, that we might truly hate our sins and love godliness and live in thankfulness.